One of the things that you can be praying for as a church as we're moving into 2022 with with Gusto is for a a, a new worship position. Uh, It's it's a call we've had out for some time, uh, probably since a little before Christmas. And, uh, you know, as we're we're looking, uh, we have once in a while we get some some okay candidates, but we're just, we haven't found our our person yet. And so, um, number one, pray. And number two, you know, if you you have spheres of influence, you know, throw throw that out to people. Uh, Job descriptions are easily available and we're, we're posted pretty much anywhere that you could imagine. And so uh, it's something to pray through because the less of me you can see up here doing 60 things at once, the better. Uh, it just works out. Yeah. No, one, no one needs to see me that much, not even my own wife and children. And so um, just something to, to pray about and to think about that the Lord would send us the person that he has called to be uh, the next leader of worship in this space. Um, well, when I was in seminary, I... Uh, you know, I drove uh, probably twice a week. Uh, every once in a while I would stay the night. But I was a full-time seminary student in Pittsburgh while still living in Hudson. And so I spent you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, sometimes Tuesday, Thursdays, Thursdays. I would drive down to Pittsburgh to attend classes for most of the day and then come home on that two-hour trek each way. And you know, if you, my car has so many miles on it, not because I, you know, I only live 10 minutes from the church, but because of those amounts of driving. And so I had a, a fairly brand new car and I put like, 90,000 miles on it in just my seminary time frame. Um, and, and eventually, my, you know, my favorite is when I got to the point where I could take the route easily. I did back roads to avoid the highway tolls. I could do it without a GPS, and I was very proud of that. Right? And so after that, I started driving on the highway, and I would see kind of where I was going or how far I was from home based on the mile markers. Right? Like 187 is the turnpike exit to get off at Streetsboro to go to, to go to Hudson. And so I knew that mile 187 was home. And so I'd, you know, I'd see the mile markers and it'd say 213. Two, you know, and keep going. And I knew how far I was because I would see those, those posts along the way that would tell me where I was going. Signs in our life are essential. Right? The things, whether they're physical signs or non-physical signs, we, we need these things to tell us where we're going. Right now, my son Graham is learning stop signs. So as we drive every once in a while, he'll just be in the back and say, stop. It's not because he wants me to stop doing what I'm doing, but because he saw a sign and he's really excited that not only does he know the sign, but he like, can tell you this is what it means. And so my mother-in-law taught him that, and so now he sees stop signs all the time as we drive. Right? We have these things in our lives to tell us what's coming. Some signs warn us of impending danger. Some signs just tell us to change lanes. Some signs aren't physical signs at all, right? You ever heard phrases like, you know, she had signs of trouble from an early age. Or, you know, she, she showed giftedness from an early age. We always knew she'd be a star. The signs were there, right? Not every sign has to be a, a metal thing in front of us, but we have signs in our lives that point to other realities, right? When we get together for Ash Wednesday, and, and in the first of March, or the first service of March, we will have communion, Communion is a sign. We don't believe that we're eating the literal body of Christ. We're not cannibals, right? But it's a sign and a symbol of something else. So when we take the bread and we drink the cup, it it proclaims something that we believe about who Christ is and the reality that it is to us. It's a means of grace by which we experience him, right? In Scripture, we see signs everywhere. Most of the time, they are called miracles, If you look through the Gospels, you will see the various miracles of Jesus. There are dozens and dozens of them. The Lord, in his time on earth and in his ministry to to the people in this world, committed over and over again to miraculous things. He healed people. He fed people. 
Right? He did things that no one could ever do that undoubtedly showed us that he was something bigger than just a man. Right? And so we record as we look through Matthew, Mark, and Luke just miracle after miracle after miracle. Those gospels, however, tend to have miracles stand on their own. And that's not a bad thing. Miracles can do so. But when we look at the Gospel of John, it's a little bit unique. Right? John calls them signs. And John, the brilliant author that he is, in the way that he phrases things and structures things, John structures his gospel in a very specific way. <clears throat> the reason John calls them signs is because for John, no miracle that Jesus does is just a miracle. It communicates something. Right? He heals somebody, not just to heal, but to communicate something about who he is. He feeds people, not just because they're hungry, but because he's trying... So every miracle according to John, that Jesus ever has performed, carries with it some kind of a sign. We're supposed to see something in it when we see the miracle. And so in the Gospel of John, we have these signs, and he goes through painstaking explanations of these signs. And a lot of times, the signs are accompanied by what we call an I am statement. There's a whole bunch in the Gospel of John. Right? Like, I am the resur resurrection of life. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the true life. All of these different I am statements. The Lord will have a miracle happen, and then there's conversation about it, and then it usually ends with him making some kind of proclamation about who he is. Right? And so for John, these signs have, are dripping with meaning. There's so much more to them. And so for the next few weeks, we are going to look at the seven signs in the Gospel of John and then, spoiler alert, there's a secret bonus awesome eighth sign, and it's the resurrection. And we'll get there by Easter. And so our eighth week of the series will be Easter Sunday, and we'll talk about the ultimate sign, the resurrection of Christ, as we celebrate the risen Lord together. But this week, we are looking at the very first of them. And it's a wedding, of all things. And so let's look together at the wedding of Cana. This is in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? That was kind of rude. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. There's two sides to this thing. Right, there's the, the plain what we see sign, and then there's the John fancy what's the real meaning behind this sign. And so we're going to look at the plainness of it first with some context, and then we'll get to the, the second part. We're at a wedding. It's on the third day. Jesus loves to do stuff on the third day. Right? 
If you want to do a fun word search, look through the through the scripture and see how many times it says on the third day. Don't count Genesis because that's random. So much stuff happens on the third day. Why? Because three is a number of completion or perfection. Right? We have a whole lot of numbers like that. Like seven is one. Uh, Twelve is one. Right? We have the 12 tribes of the Israelites, and we have 12 disciples. There's all these numbers, and in, in, in Hebrew culture of this time, numbers and, and symbolism and all these things were incredibly meaningful. Right? We don't think about it as much today. We, we value these things, perhaps maybe in some superstitious ways. Right? But they're, like, numbers had meanings and carried connotation and weight. And so the number three was significant, and so was seven, and so was 12, and so were a whole bunch of other numbers. We could do a whole Bible study on that someday, the numbers of the scriptures. Where's Mark? Mark, get on it. Numbers of the scriptures. Next. Or don't. I, I'm not telling you what to do. That's, that's a suggestion, not a, not a command by any stretch. Right? But we have these numbers. So on the third day, there's this, and he's at a wedding. And one of the obvious things that we need to understand is that there's a wedding celebration happening. Jesus is there, presumably because he was invited, presumably because he actually had friends and, and a normal life, right? And so there's this wedding happening. And we can probably guess that, you know, since this is in Galilee, this is Jesus' neck of the woods. He's still local. He hasn't really broken out fully into his ministry yet. But this is kind of the, the cusp of, of that breakout, right? This is Jesus' kind of own, kind of coming into his own as as opening his public ministry type of thing. And so it starts with the local crowd. The reason he was invited is presumably because this was a local village wedding. He would have known Jesus. The bride and groom would have known him and he would have known them. His mother is invited. The disciples are invited. They're all local people coming together for a wedding. And weddings, oh man, if you think planning your wedding was tough and stressful, weddings in this culture were the event of the decade. They would take days to celebrate a wedding. And it was a massive spec, spec, spectacle. I was going to say a massive spectacular. A massive spectacle, right? Where the people of the town would come together. Presumably almost everyone would be invited. There was all kinds of cultural things that had to take place. There was a whole lot of honor and shame potential in a wedding. And it was this thing, even for the poorest people, the day of their wedding was a majestic thing and a feast to behold. Certain commentators will talk about the culture of that time and, and it will go so far to say that during the time of the wedding, the bride and the groom, they were almost like the king and queen of the town. Everybody centered around them and the celebration. And the feast that was put on was judged very, very, very critically. You had to do it right. You ever been to a wedding? And you're like, this steak is just rubber. What were they thinking? Well, they were thinking they don't want to spend $200 a plate. That's what they were thinking, in case you're ever wanting to know. Right? But weddings were a big deal. And so we're told that as the wedding is progressing, they run out of wine. And we think, oh, that would be an embarrassing thing for us. I'm trying to think back to my wedding if we had run out of booze. I think it would have been a, oh, well, that stinks. All right, we'll drink water. Right? It wouldn't have been a big deal to us. It would have been an embarrassment for sure. It would have been like, oh, well, you didn't buy enough. But we have to understand something. In the culture of this time, this was borderline criminal. Wine, as numbers are important to Scripture, wine represented something. It represented a joy and an exuberance. And to have wine at the wedding was unbelievably important. It's not because people wanted to get drunk, right? 
It wasn't that the Jews were mad that they couldn't get their drink on anymore, but it was a significant thing. So to run out was to run out of joy in a sense. It was like, well, this is our symbol of the, of the jubilant celebration. If it's not here, then really there's a celebration. Here's how bad it is. If you ran your wedding and you ran out of wine, you could be sued by someone in your town. They would file lawsuits against you for not properly partying the way that you're supposed to. <laughs> this is intense. I say that, like, this is a big deal. This is not just an embarrassment to the, the people involved, but this is a almost criminal action in some way. So to run out of wine is a devastating thing. It will ruin their wedding and their marriage for years to come. Right? And so Mary comes to Jesus. And Mary approaches it, and she says, you know, you, you hey, Jesus, the, the, the couple is about to run out of wine. And his response to them is, um, woman, first of all, he says, why are, you, like, why are you bothering me with this? My hour has not yet come, which is such a cryptic thing. Right? Can you imagine if you go to your child and you're like, hey, your room's dirty. They're like, woman? <laughs> first off, <laughs> if you call your mom woman and she doesn't slap you, she's parenting wrong. Right? You're, you're, you got to do it. Right? My hour has not yet come to clean my room. <laughs> I picture in my head just like how far Graham would fly across the room if he said that to me. Like, I don't know, like, can you, how, how far can you punt a toddler, right? It's not an acceptable thing. We need to understand two things, though. Number one, the, the phrase woman is not the slap in the face that you think it is. It's actually culturally of that time a, a, a kind of a, a respect phrase. So for him to say woman, it's, it's to elevate her. So it's not an insult. It's something that he says to her. It would be like saying, yes, mother, right? Like, it's, it's an honorable phrase. So Jesus is not insulting his mom by calling her woman, it's culturally a whole different thing. So you, you got to get over the cliche of that in today's world. And then we get to this phrase, my hour has not yet come. And, and we don't really know exactly what he means there. He says it a couple other times throughout scripture and we get some more clarity, right? Like there's places he won't go because his hour hasn't yet come. And he knows once he goes there, like events will be set in motion. And so he avoids those places. There's various times through scripture he says it, but here it's just, it's just an odd phrase and the best that we can think of is it's not my time to die yet so don't bring this on me like once I become public once I set things in motion once people start to learn who I am right the events of my death are going to start to be set in motion and we see this very early on in Jesus's ministries the Pharisees and religious leaders they start to plot his death right it doesn't take very long right? as a matter of fact he's going to cleanse the temple right after this and things are just going to start to progress and get ugly from there. And so the best potential explanation we have for this phrase is that Jesus is just thinking, yeah, it's not, it's not my time yet. Why, why, why bother me with this? And I love Mary's response. She just says, hey, um, servants, yeah, do whatever he tells you. And then she like, is out of the scene. So Jesus is like, you know, woman, I'm not sure that this is something I should be doing. I don't know if I'm ready to do this yet. I don't know if I want to do this yet. Um, Whatever he says, do it. All right. Um, she essentially is like, I don't really care what you think. Like, there's no wine, and I know who, what you're capable of. Right? She understands that he is who he is before anyone else understands. She has raised the Savior from birth on. She gets it. Right? And so she understands that he is going to end up doing something miraculous here to help out this couple. And that's what he does. And so the solution is this. He, she comes to him. He takes 
the, 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 the little jars and he turns them into wine. And when I say little, I am very much under-exaggerating. They're these massive jars. Right? A milk jug is one gallon. These are 20 to 30 gallon jars. They're massive stone jars. And they're used, we're told, for these rites of purification. And we'll get back to that when we get into the deeper meaning of this. And so Jesus has the servants fill them to the brim with water. And then he turns them to wine. We're talking about like 120 to 180 gallons of wine. It's a lot of wine. It's a pretty great wedding gift. Like if someone had showed up at my wedding with like a truck and be like, Water storage tanks, it's not water in there, buddy. Congratulations. Right? <laughs> just, just have that wine ready to go. We'd be drinking it until we're like 65, 70 years old. And we'd just be going through wine after wine bottle, and it'd be majestic. And so the wine is made. The miracle has occurred. It occurs silently. It's not like he gets in front of the jars and does some magic spell. Right? We're not told how exactly it happens. All we're told is they fill the jars, and he says, take some. And they take it, and it's still water at this point. And then he said, take it to the master of the feast. And they take it to the master. And as he tastes it, it has become wine. Right? We're told the master of the feast isn't really in on this miracle. Right? He has no way of knowing that a miracle has occurred. All he knows is a servant brought him a cup of wine. Right? And he drinks it, and he's perplexed immediately. And so he goes to the bridegroom and he asks the question, hey, what, what's the deal with this wine? Like all the other weddings I've ever been to, like, they bring the best stuff out first, and then once everybody's, like, drunk enough to not notice, then they bring out, like, the box wine, right? Maybe you've done that at a wedding, right? Like, there's all kinds of ways to cheat at a wedding. One of the best ones I've seen is they get a fake cake, and in the back there's Costco cake, and when they slice it, they just bring out the Costco cake because a wedding cake is, like, crazy expensive, right? I've known so many people that do that. They cut their cake. It's cardboard. The top is real. That's it, but they do this with wine, and so they're like, this is how they do this. They bring the good stuff out until you're too drunk to care. And then they bring the gross wine. But you have saved the best wine for last. And so Jesus doesn't only turn water to wine. Jesus has been to Sonoma. Jesus knows how to make the best wine that is out there. Right? He's been there. He has seen it. He's watched the movie Bottle Shock, for those of you who have seen that. And he has figured out how to make the best wine imaginable. And so the master of the feast is just pleasantly surprised. And in the end, what happens is honor comes to this bridegroom and his new family. Because not only are they not known as the people who ran out, they're known as the people who saved the best for last. And everything is saved. And then what's the reaction? Well, not a lot of reaction because most people don't know. Right? The only people that are in on this miracle are Jesus, the servants, we're told, and the disciples. And we know this because at the very end, the response of them is that the disciples believed. Right? When they saw this happen, the disciples believed in him. That's all it tells us. And so that's the surface. Right? This wedding miracle, God makes wine out of water. He, he has the celebration continue. He saves the day. He does it rather silently. Only a handful of people see it. But of course, we're reading this in the Gospel of John. And John just loves to have things drip with meaning, as I said. And so we have to understand a few key things. This passage is not just about a wedding. John uses a wedding passage to draw an analogy between Christ and our lives today and in that time. For John, this miracle of Jesus says something far more than, I am willing to save a party. 
it says something to him about who Jesus is. As I mentioned, wine was symbolic for joy. For John, to run out of wine was to run out of joy. And so the wine that Christ provides is the wine that brings the joy back. What's the message here? You may find joy wherever you want. Later this year, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And we'll see the quest of one man with infinite resources to find joy in his utter failure. You may look for joy in all kinds of things. Your wine may be a whole bunch of different things. All that stuff brings joy. The party was going before Jesus saved it. There was wine, it was flowing, it was wonderful. People were enjoying themselves, having fun. But it ultimately ran out. And so will our joy, apart from the one who provides the choice wine. There's a finite end to the level of joy and exhilaration and jubilance that we can experience apart from Christ. And we've seen it. For John, this has echoes back to the old covenant with Moses. The, The wine that is original to the wedding represents that old covenant. It got them so far. It was good. But it's run its course. It is not enough. And so Jesus comes in and says, listen, there is a new wine that is better than anything you've ever had. And here it is. It's a free gift. It's not by accident that Jesus uses these purification jars. These jars that were used to hold water that the people would use to purify and wash themselves has become unnecessary because the way that they cleanse themselves in the Old Covenant, is not the same way that they cleanse themselves in the New Covenant. The New Covenant, the way that we are clean, is not by our own washing or our own efforts, but by Christ's sufficient death on the cross. And so these jars have no more reason to be. And so why not just use them as vessels to store wine? Because what other purpose could they serve? The message that John sends, that Jesus sends through this, that John sees, is that there is a new joy, a newness in town, ready to come and eventually be fulfilled in the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the ruling of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's a foretaste of what is to come. And so Jesus, at the very beginning, before he ever utters a word of his ministry, he gets up and he makes the choice wine, and he says, here it is. Do you want to have a foretaste of what it'll be like under me forever? Drink. I made 180 gallons. You're not going to run out. It's just going to keep flowing. And by the way, if you actually manage to drink 180 gallons, I'll just make more. Right? The joy that Christ sends through, his son, through, the, through the death and resurrection on the cross is infinite to us. He comes to this earth to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, to rise again so that the weight and the crushing blow of this world and all of the mess and the devastation and the sin in our life coming together would bear no weight anymore. And whatever you have tried to seek joy in and refuge in in your life in the past is going to be finite. It's going to run out. You can try to buy your way to joy and it's not going to work. You can try to have the right relationships. You can try to get power wherever you want it. You can do whatever it is that you want in this world. You can try to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can try to find the joy in your children and live vicariously through them if you want to. But all of it is going to have a finite end. It is not going to last. 
Jesus has come and he starts his public ministry with this proclamation. I am here. There is a joy to be found the likes of which you have never seen before. Buckle up. Because it's coming. And if you follow me, and if you walk with me, and if you believe in me, you'll get to experience that joy too, right? I'm preparing a place for you. He says, in my Father's house. Maybe this morning you need joy. For the past couple years, Lord knows all of us could use some joy. Right? We need it back. We need to have joy in the house of the Lord again, don't we? <laughs> to some degree. The Lord is who provides it. Over the next few weeks, as we engage with the signs of Jesus and the miracles that he performs, we will see things through the lens of John as he explains to us each and every time and at each and every turn who exactly Jesus is in light of what he does. And as we keep watching and keep waiting, we'll eventually get to the resurrection and we will celebrate the ultimate definition of who Christ is. But until that time, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the, the meaning that emerges from a passage like this, that we can see the surface levels, that yes, you are one who brings life to the party. Father, that you are not a stagnant, boring God, but that you are a God of joy and fun and energy and love. That your people under you can celebrate and live into that joy. And Father, we praise you for the deeper meaning of what it means that we can live under your joy. That as we have tried to seek it out in every other place and failed, that ultimately our rest and our peace and our joy and our comfort is found only in you. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for the fact that you came to this earth to engage with your people as their great high priests who suffered in every way as we have and knows what it is like to struggle through life and now embraces us as a ruling king sitting on the throne that we can trust in, that we can rely on, that we can follow, that we can worship, and in which we can find our comfort. So Lord, we pray this morning that each of us would abide more deeply in your presence. We pray that everyone here as they go out of this place might experience just a snippet of your joy just a taste of your choice wine. Be with us as we leave this place. Allow us to be shaped by your word and transformed so that we in turn can go and shape those around us and proclaim your good news. Lord, may you use us this week to bring the choice wine to those who need it, who are thirsty and who have run out. We love you and praise you. And all as people said, amen.